0: 2 Samuel chapter 15. We are still in the wilderness. It is the same wilderness that we were in last week with Jesus. It's exactly the same geographical area, but we've got into a time machine and we've headed back about a thousand years to King David. And... I guess I've just been thinking more about the wilderness this this past week and thinking about David's wilderness experiences as well. David had two wilderness experiences that we know of. He was pursued by a, a madman, King Saul, who just was driven completely nuts by his jealousy and his rage towards David and pursued him in the wilderness. David was anointed king and was being chased around the wilderness like a dog by this, this man, Saul. And then there was a later wilderness experience in David's life as well, where this time it's a younger man who is causing David hassle and heartbreak. And it's actually his own son, Absalom. And what I want to do this morning is just look at the background of what has caused David to be in the wilderness, why he is where he is, and what he does when he's actually there. Because I think probably this experience of David is in the background of the experience of Jesus that we looked at last week, even though there's a full millennium in between the two of them. So let's read Second Samuel 15, starting in verse 1. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the of the men of Israel. Absalom is David's son, and David didn't discipline Absalom. Absalom got everything he wanted. Beautiful Absalom, handsome guy with lovely long thick hair that became his downfall and uh, david never really disciplined his sons absalom stayed up late at night and didn't go to bed when he was told absalom played on the games console for longer than he was allowed david didn't put any boundaries around absalom did not discipline him did not deal with him and absalom as he got older wanted the throne and wanted david off the throne and as we're just going to quickly fly over 2 Samuel 15 and 16 and pick out half a dozen verses to let you see what is going on in David's life whenever he goes into the wilderness. Absalom, if you read there at the end of verse 6, it says he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. The people of Israel were loyal to King David. They were his people. He had fought for them. He had established a throne for them. He had established Jerusalem for them. And Absalom steals their hearts. We sometimes use that phrase, you know, stealing somebody's heart in like a romantic way. You know, somebody stole my heart. There's nothing romantic about this. This is just pure wickedness where you worm your way into somebody's life and you start to draw their affections away from someone else towards yourself. It is pure evil. And Absalom's a master at it. When somebody came, in those verses that we read, when somebody came and they wanted to have an issue brought before the king or before some of the king's courtiers to get judgment and to get get something sorted out, Absalom would come up to them and he would sweet talk to them. You know, he would say, you know, there's nobody here from the king's court. There's no one here to help you. If only I was the king. Here's what I would do. If I was in charge, I would do, and we would sort your problem out and everything would be grand. He's an absolute wretch. He's just a worm wriggling his way into people's hearts and pulling them away from God's anointed king towards himself. A few verses later in in verse 12, we read about uh, Ahithophel. And it says that Ahithophel was David's counselor, close friend, advisor, Someone that David went to in times of trouble and said, Ahithophel, what what do I do here? This is going on. And, and, And Ahithophel knew David's heart. And David had no doubt shared a lot of his inner, inmost secrets with Ahithophel. But Absalom is a real twister. And Absalom calls or sends for Ahithophel, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength. And Absalom's following kept on increasing. So not only is Absalom trying to get the the people of the land to direct their affections towards him, he also goes to one of David's closest friends. says, why don't you come and join me? Why don't you come and help me? Now, you just put yourself in David's shoes. As we go through these different things, put yourself in David's shoes. As he watches Absalom turn the people against him, turn one of his own counselors against him. In fact, you will read later on, we'll not, we'll not get there, but in 2 Samuel 16, towards the end, Ahithophel gives Absalom some advice as to how he can really publicly humiliate David with his wives, with his concubines. And and Ahithophel, this guy moves from being a close friend, David writes about him in the Psalms, a close friend to somebody who then goes to David's enemy that Absalom had become and says to his enemy, I know David, I know his heart, I've walked with him, I've been close to him, if you want to do damage to him, do this. That's horrendous. And David's having to process all of that. And in verse 14, David hears about Absalom's rebellion And David says, we must flee. We need to get out of here. None of us will escape from Absalom. We must move or we must leave immediately. And we read on later in verse 15 that the king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved towards the wilderness. So David leaves his throne, leaves his palace and the people that are still loyal to him go with him and they basically march out of the city. It's a very somber, sober Picture as he leaves the city. There's a lot of weeping going on as as he he walks out. And it says here, he crosses the Kidron Valley. You know, one of the things about knowing the Old Testament and the New Testament and and, and just looking at how they all weave together. There's one book. We read about Jesus in John 18, just on a side note, John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had finished praying, he (laughs) left with his disciples and he crossed the Kidron Valley. And you're meant to tie the two things together because David has just been betrayed by Ahithophel, his close friend, and he leaves and he goes across the Kidron Valley. And Jesus in John 18 has just been betrayed by Judas and he leaves and he goes and crosses the Kidron Valley. We read on in verse 30 of chapter 15, David continued up the Mount of Olives weeping as he went. Can you picture it? Can you even begin to feel a fraction of the pain in this man's heart? as people have turned on him, as he's walked out of his city that he was called to lead and rule from, and he goes up the Mount of Olives. And if you know a wee bit of geography around Jerusalem, you'll know that on the side of the Mount of Olives, there's a garden, and the garden's called Gethsemane. And David's actually walking the same path that a thousand years later Jesus would walk on the night that he was betrayed. David may well have walked through Gethsemane as he he went up the side of the Mount of Olives. And then he he thinks about Mephibosheth. And you know the story of Mephibosheth. It's a powerful story about this guy coming and sitting at the king's table, being treated as one of the king's sons. We all know about Mephibosheth. David David loved him and treated him well, even though he was a descendant of King Saul. And David, I think, is is probably getting a bit desperate here. And he's seeing the number of people that have turned against him. And he says in, in chapter 16, verse 3, where is Mephibosheth? "'Surely he'll not turn on me. "'I brought him, I brought him to my table. "'I protected him. He was, "'He was a cripple and I loved him "'and I've looked after him "'and I've provided for him. Sure, "'Where is he? "'Why is he not with us?' "'And Ziba said to him, "'He's staying in Jerusalem "'because he thinks today the Israelites "'will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom.' "'Mephibosheth jumps ship. "'He sees David's throne becoming unstable "'and Mephibosheth waits behind in Jerusalem.' to see what's going to happen rather than staying loyal to David. You imagine the pain of that. You imagine the pain of that. In Second Samuel chapter 9, four times you read about Mephibosheth eating at the king's table and being treated as one of his own sons. Have you ever done that? Have you ever invested really, really heavily in someone? They've sat at your table over and over again. You've ate food with them. And then as soon as there's a bit of a wobble, they're gone. Mephibosheth's gone. That's sad. You imagine David processing that, as well as processing Absalom turning the people against him, as well as processing Absalom himself turning against him, as well as processing Ahithophel turning against him. It's a pretty sad situation that David's in as he wanders through this wilderness to the Mount of Olives. And as if that's not bad enough, there is another guy who comes up on the scene In verse 5 of chapter 16, As David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei. I didn't look it up, but I'm pretty sure it's Hebrew for to You know, this is an absolute rat. And scumbag of a character. He's a real, he just comes out and it says in verse 5 and the start of chapter, verse 6, he says, he cursed as he came out and he pelted David and all the king's officials with stones. Just a whole slabbering match from Shimei. You add that to the list of stuff that's going on, you've got this, this absolute nut coming along and just chucking, literally throwing stones and dirt at them consumed with hatred and in, in, the, in the next verse or a couple of verses later Abishai comes to David again picture the scene David's there he's flanked by military guys and one of them comes up to him and says listen do you see that fellow over there would you like me to go and remove his head and David says no no that's not how we do things and I can imagine Abishai saying to David no hang on I do remember you took somebody's head off one time big fella From Philistia, I believe, yeah. But there's a difference here, and this is important. Goliath was defying God and defying the armies and the people of God. Shimei is just slabbering at David. And David just says, just leave it. Leave it. Okay, this is a different thing here. Leave it. It'll burn out. God will deal with it. You don't need to go and do anything. And in verse 13... David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him. Picture it. Laugh if you want, because I think it's funny. Cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. So so I don't know geographically what it looked like, but David David is, is walking along the road and up on a sort of hillside, just beside the road is this nutter just running along and, and throwing stones down at David and lifting up handfuls of dirt and chucking them down at David and cursing at him the whole time. Have you got a Eye in your life? Have you got someone who just stands at a distance and chucks stones at you? Yeah, throws dirt at you. And as I thought of Eye, I'm sorry, but this is who came to mind. Now, <laughs> some of you will recognize this lady from a TV show. If you don't, Nigel will tell you afterwards who it is, but this is, a, this is just a woman who is so consumed with hatred that she can't actually stand still, and she's got two shopping bags in her hand, and she's just a, and the bags are going everywhere, and she's shouting and giving, she's just filled with rage. That's what comes to mind when I think of Shimei. I, I just picture this wee guy bouncing with rage as he walks along beside David. It's almost laughable. He he can't actually hardly walk, that he's just so filled with hatred. That's what we've got cursing, throwing stones, and showering him with dirt. And then, verse 14 of chapter 16 the king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. Anybody exhausted? They're in the wilderness. And I think, have you ever been in a situation and you feel this is almost, you know the way you'll hear people talk about a perfect storm? <laughs> and you've just got so much going on. He's had to leave the city where he worships God. He's had to leave the temple, leave the ark, leave the symbols of God's presence behind. Ahithophel, his closest trusted counselor, has turned on him. Mephibosheth, who ate at his table, has turned on him. He is suffering the pain of being away from the temple, the pain of seeing his son rebel against him, the pain of his friends turning on him, and this muppet Shimei bouncing along the road beside him, chucking dirt at him and cursing. Everywhere David looks, something is going wrong. Everywhere. Have you ever been there? Where it just looks every direction you look, there is something going wrong. He is exhausted, he is betrayed, he is abandoned, he is being cursed. Do you ever, have you ever felt like that? And it is wearying. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. Just worn out. Physically, yes, from the journey, but emotionally, spiritually, mentally pounded by what they've been through. And there he refreshed himself. You ever felt under pressure and, and just things keep on coming at you? And again, sorry for the slightly comical nature of what came to my mind whenever I thought about being under pressure. I don't often quote Star Wars because I'm 42 and I've grown out of it, which most 42-year-olds should have. Um, but there's a scene in, in the in the very first movie from the blessed year, 1977, where uh, three of the characters, and well, four of them, if you include the big hairy fella, uh, have all slid down a a chute and they're in what's called a garbage masher. So they're in amidst all of this rubbish and junk and that's not a good place to be. That's bad. And then they realise there's a creature in it as well that's sort of swimming around in amidst all of the garbage and water and stuff that's in there. There's some sort of weird snake-like monster and that adds to their problems and then things get worse whenever the walls start to actually move in to crush all the garbage and crush them as well. Have you ever felt that there's just one thing after another going wrong? It's bad enough to be where you are, but then something else appears and then something else happens and then a letter comes and then a phone call and then a text and then a, and it just seems to keep on coming and coming and coming. Exhausted, under pressure. You don't need to nod or raise your hand, but I'm pretty sure you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Under pressure. Finances, relationships, jobs, health. Everywhere you look, something is going wrong. But you know, pressure can be a good thing because pressure, pressure will expose our hearts. I want to tell you that that is just a simple fact. Pressure reveals what's in the heart. Pressure reveals what's in the heart, it reveals our priorities. And what does David do? Because we read back there in in verse fourteen, they're exhausted and he refreshed himself. And that's the point where you just stop and you think, David, what did you do? What did you do? <laughs> you know, it's like that verse in First Samuel thirty, verse six, where we read about David strengthening himself, encouraging himself in the Lord, and you're just like, What did you do, David? Tell me what you did. Three steps so that I can do it. What did you do? Well, on this occasion, this is what David did. He wrote a song. In the wilderness, he wrote a song and he began to sing. And I want to just take the the last sort of portion of this morning's message and, and just walk through this song that he sings. Because I think this, for some of you... For everyone who's, who's in a wilderness, you know this could be a good song to just lay hold of for a few days or a few weeks or whatever it takes and just look at David's posture as he writes this. Psalm 63 starts off with the, the superscription, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. Sometimes we have to guess when David wrote the psalms and sometimes he tells us, and on this occasion he tells us. And I believe that this ties right in with 2 Samuel 16, 14, exhausted from all of those things that I have drawn out for you. And he goes and refreshes himself. And I think this is it. This is it. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. My God. You, God, are my God. That is not the language of possession, the language of you belong to me type, you know. It's the language of covenant. Because in the Old Testament, something you will read the prophets saying again and again as they speak on behalf of God, the phrase comes out, I will be their God and they will be my people. It's the language of a covenant relationship. So when, when, when David says, oh God, you are my God, I believe he's invoking that sense of I will be their God. And when he says that, he is drawing, I believe, on the faithfulness of a covenant God. It's not just sort of mine, mine, mine. But it's a declaration of there is a relationship and there is a covenant here. And I am laying hold on a God who I know is faithful to his people. It is the language of covenant faithfulness. It is the language of personal relationship. He's not just the God of Israel. He's not just the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's not the God of of uh, of my father Jesse. He's not the God of my ancestors. He's my God as well. I have a personal connection with him. I'm not just laying hold on a God that I don't actually walk with or know. He is my God. He says, early or earnestly, I seek you. Earnestly is probably a better translation for all of you who are not morning people, do not feel guilty by the word early. The word early is not about time, it's about priority. It's about priority. So I would encourage you, if you're fit to get up in the morning and seek God, it's a tremendous habit to get into, you should try it. But if you're a person who finds it easier to seek God in the evening, that's fine. What this word talks about is priority. He is my first and highest priority, regardless of what time of day it's actually taken place at. Earnestly, first priority, I seek him diligently. My soul thirsts. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. David is looking at this desert, and the desert of Judah is a particularly barren place geographically. No water, very little vegetation. everything is dry and David uses the, the the circumstances around him to describe the thirst of his own soul. Have you ever been really, 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 really thirsty? <laughs> you know you ever read those articles in the newspaper where they tell you you should be drinking four liters of water a day or something like that, and you look at it and think i couldn't possibly consume that amount of water. But then on maybe a sunny summer day and you're out doing some work about the garden, you're cutting hedges, you're cutting grass and you're doing a few things and you're just guzzling pint after pint of water going down into it because you're dry and you're thirsty, and you're parched. And David says, my soul is parched. I need God. All of these experiences, keep them all in mind. Shimei and Mephibosheth and Ahithophel and Absalom. All of these disappointments, all of these hurts and betrayals, and his soul is dry and thirsty. And he's thirsty for God. You know, we sang earlier, I want more of you, God. Don't misunderstand this, that, that line as if to say, God has given us a small percentage of himself, and, we, and somehow we have to get more out of him. God has given us himself in all his fullness, and when we sing, I want more of you, God, it's not that we're trying to squeeze something out of God. It's that we're declaring in our old souls that we're desperate for him. Absolutely desperate for him. Thirsting after him. I want more of you, God. And David in verse, still in verse 1, I want you to note something and you'll see it throughout the whole psalm. He doesn't ask for anything at any point. He doesn't ask for anything. He doesn't ask to have his throne back. He doesn't ask that his traitor friends who have betrayed him would get seriously ill all of a sudden. He doesn't ask that Shimei, as he bounces and chucks stones, will slip and fall off a cliff. He doesn't ask for any of those things. He just wants God. Right, in his wilderness, with all of that stuff going on around him, he just this is what we've got to learn as we go through these times in our own lives. He just wants God. Just the presence of the Lord. He says in verse 2, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory. In other words, when I've been in Jerusalem, when I've been in that place of worship, I've seen you, I've experienced you. But God, can you come here? Can you be here in this wilderness as well? Sometimes it's, it's easy to encounter God when we're together and when we're worshiping and praising Him together. But when we're in a wilderness and we're suddenly very alone, Will he be there as well? Yes, he will. Yes, he so will. That crying out for him. And he says in verse 3, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. This word love is that beautiful Old Testament word hesed. That means steadfast love. Unfailing love. Again, it's about the faithful love of God. It's not just about affection. It's about covenant faithful love and David knows that love and he says it's better than life now I don't know about you but there's a lot of stuff about life that I like all right we all go through challenging times when when life seems so horrendously awful but there's a lot of good stuff in life all right steak is good Amen? amen man steak is good coffee is good you lift, you lift a cup of coffee and the, the, the wafts get into your nostril and you smell it and you're like, yes, <laughs> this is good. This is not just a drug. This is not just a pick-me-up. This is really, really good. This is really good. Sunrises are good and sunsets are good and stars are good and, 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 and the laughter of, of people is good. Jack Russells are good. There's a lot in life that is good. So much that that God has given us to bring us joy. But David says if we don't have his love and his presence, there's no point in going on living. His love is better than life. Better than life. And therefore, David resolves in verse 4, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Why do some of us lift our hands in worship? Because the Bible has lots of people in it who lift their hands in worship. It's a posture of surrender, posture of just standing before God and completely surrendering to him in worship. I will praise you as long as I live. That's a good ambition, isn't it? Spend lots of time with intelligent teenagers and they've got all these different ambitions. Tell you what, it would rock my world someday if a a 16-year-old kid said to me, I'm going to praise God for as long as I live. That would be a pretty cool ambition. Don't need any A-levels to do that. I'll praise you as long as I live. That's a life well lived. And in verse 5, he says, I will be satisfied. The person who positions themselves the way David does to earnestly thirst and seek after the presence of God will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, or probably a better translation would be with joyful lips, I will praise you. Those who seek God and make God a priority are a satisfied people. No matter what's going on around, there is a a deep contentment in the midst of it all. And there is a joy marked a lot of the time by singing. So how did David actually get here? How those first five verses how did he how does he get to that place? Some of you might look at that and say, "I can't do that, you know i'm just I'm so tormented and, and I can't position myself the way David did. I want you to see that in verse six, David says, "On my bed, I remember you, I think of you through the watches of the night." David doesn't count sheep, David." reflects on the goodness and the faithfulness of God David goes back to all of the times that God has come through and chooses to meditate on those things that drives him back to his knees in the presence of God just the faithfulness of God do we have a track record with God if you're young in your faith and you don't have a track record with God yet then this is the track record that you can put yourself into because this is our ancestry and this is our history and this is our God. This tells us what his character is like. So if you feel you're in a tight spot and you're under pressure and the walls are closing in, let me tell you that your God splits the sea. He splits the sea. You might never have seen a sea split, but you're following a God whose character is to split seas and create a way where there is no way. David has a track record and he he recounts the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And he knows that because God has helped him in the past, he's going to sing in the wilderness. He's going to sing under the shadow of God's wings. Shimei is chucking the stones, but God's wings are over David. And then verse 8, which in the King James Version is beautiful. And I'm not, you know, a... a I find the King James Version sometimes (laughs) difficult, slightly difficult to read. But it's beautiful. My soul follows hard after thee. That's amazing. That's discipleship in a phrase. My soul follows hard after thee, or I will cling to you is what it says here. I will cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Do you know what? I think nothing would give me more joy than to know that every single one of you follows hard after him. That's the greatest desire, to have a group of people who follow hard after God. Just God pursuing people, and I love the, the the two parts of this verse. I will, I cling to you. My soul follows hard, hard after you. My soul cleaves to you. Whatever way you want to put it, there's a sense of David reaching out to grab hold of God. You ever been in a in a in a position almost? You're feeling like life is just in free fall, and you're just you know just reaching out trying to grab God. But when as David reaches out and tries to lay hold on God, he finds your right hand upholds me. (laughs) I'm reaching out for you, but you've already got me. (laughs) My scrabbling, scratching fingertips just trying to get a hold, but then I realize there's a massive, mighty right hand holding me the whole time. (laughs) I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. And with that thought, David's prayer is over. The psalm's not over. But David gets up. So for those first eight verses, I can picture David on his face before God. I advise you sometimes to try when you're in the wilderness to not just stand and not just kneel, but literally get down on the floor on your face <laughs> and just put yourself at the, at the mercy of God, on your, physically on your face. And I believe David has been in that posture as he's reflected on this. I don't know how he wrote the Psalms, you know, where he wrote them, or whether he just sang them and memorized them as he sang them. But after eight verses of this, I can see him getting up off the, off the floor, off the ground, just pushing himself up, rising. And he's encountered God. He's been in the presence of God. And he comes out without a hint of fear. He sees clearly with utter confidence in God regarding the outcome. He has drank from the well of living water that Jesus a thousand years later would offer to a Samaritan woman in John 4. His thirst has been quenched. And David suddenly now gets a God perspective in verse 9. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. After he's been in the presence of God, he doesn't come out saying, I'm going to go sharpen my sword and clean Shimei and Absalom off the face of the earth. He comes away from the presence of God and he, he, the whole thing has been handed over. Lord, you deal with it. Vengeance is yours. Vindication is yours. You deal with it, Lord. He's got a perspective of what's going to happen to his enemies. To be food for jackals was about the most undignified way to die because jackals apparently are the last scavengers to show up. When there's a carcass being devoured by wild animals, the jackals come last after everything else has had its fill. So, so this, David is saying, my enemies... Their end is going to be completely undignified. I'm going to leave it to God. He can deal with it. I'm not going to deal with it. And verse 11, the last verse of the psalm, he says at the end of the verse that liars will be silenced. All those who are chucking rocks and stones, Shimei and Ahithophel and all of those people, they're, they're going to be silenced. But the king will rejoice in God. You've got a mouth, folks. You've got a mouth, and you can choose to use it to rejoice in God, or you can choose to use it to chuck rocks and stones at people. I think it is one of the gravest things we can do to use our mouth to run down other people. In extreme cases, you might warn somebody about a character who is damaging and dangerous. But to be in a habitual way of running people down with your mouth is an exceptionally dangerous way to use your mouth. God has given you a mouth. And James says, how can can sweet water and salt, how, how can they both come from the same source? How can the same mouth praise God and also curse men? God's given you a mouth. Don't use it the way Shimei did. Use it the way David did. To rejoice and to praise God. He's confident, he's he's been in that presence and he's now confident about the outcome. And as you read on in the story in 2 Samuel, Absalom did not go away immediately and Shimei did not go away and David didn't do anything with them, but they met their end. Absalom ends up hanging in a tree. Shimei is killed at the orders of King Solomon later on, but David doesn't do any of it. David leaves it with God. He goes into the presence of God on his face. I want you. I just want you. Come and quench my thirst. And he gets up and he dusts himself off and he moves on. Absalom and Shimei still there. I watched a film this past week. I've seen it before, but I watched it again. A Beautiful Mind. It's an incredibly powerful film about a, about a mathematician <sighs> genius mathematician called John Nash but he's also schizophrenic and utterly utterly tormented and I'm not going to ruin it for you because I really really think you should watch it but as you go through the film the the people that torment him never go away but he just ignores them and actually the way he overcomes it is, is through the love of a supportive wife but they never go away but he just doesn't give them any oxygen. He doesn't give them any attention. And he goes on and moves on with his life. He chooses not to engage with them the same way David would not engage with Absalom and Shimei. God will deal with them. So two wonderful phrases in that psalm as we come to a close. Your love, your steadfast love, is better than life. Think of the most joyful thing you can think of right now. Don't say it out loud in case we blush. But think of the most joyful thing that life offers or half a dozen of the most joyful things that life offers. All of them pale away into insignificance if we don't have his love and his presence. And my soul follows hard after you. Not after revenge. Not after Shimei and Absalom. After God. Complete focus on God. If it was a Presbyterian, I'd put it this way. Our pressures expose our priorities. And our priority needs to be presence. Everything we do must be about the presence of God. Are you worn out? Are you exhausted? Have you, are the walls closing in? Is pressure coming in from every angle? What's the priority got to be? It's got to be the presence of God. We're here this morning in the presence of God. We'll be here tomorrow night to pray in the presence of God. Whenever we open up on a Friday night to bring in young people, we're bringing them into the presence of God. We've now started opening up a Saturday night a month to bring in other young people. We're bringing them into the presence of God. The kids on a Sunday morning once a month go down there and they're in the presence of God. It's all about getting people into the presence of God. All about that. Zechariah eight. No, two, five, prayed it the other night again that God is the wall of fire around us and the glory within, the glory within. The drawing factor has got to be the presence and the glory of God. We want to encounter his presence. So I would just encourage you, if you're in a wilderness, if you have your Ahithophels and your Shimeis and your Absaloms and your Mephibosheths, your heartbreaks, your pains... Take a a leaf out of David's journal and just go before God and say, I just want you. I just want you. All the rest of this stuff, whatever, I just want you. So Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you, Lord, that you satisfy our craving, thirsting souls. And Lord, I pray even now as we lift our voices to you in song, that we will experience that satisfaction again. That you will come and minister to us just by your presence. When we walk out the door, Shimei might still be there, chucking his stones. Help us to ignore him, Lord. Help us to focus on you and to drink from that well of living water. Amen.